This is Our American Stories, and today we celebrate Veterans Day. This holiday started out as Armistice Day to mark the anniversary of the end of major hostilities in World War I. After World War II, this was expanded to honor all veterans. In recent decades, military service has become more of a family tradition than a national one. As we've moved to an all-volunteer force, fewer and fewer of us know the men and women who serve in our armed forces. So on this Veterans Day, we'd like to start the hour by telling you the story of a legend among veterans. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to tell Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story twice. First, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And then we'll hear Benavidez himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen 
and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. And no one did those ceremonies better than Reagan because Reagan, well, that's what he lived for, was that kind of ceremony. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Master Sergeant Benavides himself. And we're all grateful to all of you, and fallen or not, here on Veterans Day, anyone who served, tip a hat, thank them, honor them, all veteran stories in a way. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides' story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind this legend? Here's Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town in Quero, Texas. I was born there, in the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by nine and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs, shine shoes, sold papers, picked cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn the skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learned the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia, but the darn recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learned oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross-trained medic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. <laughs> Feeling danke, danke, sir. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg, and Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese Infantry Unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clocker Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to retire, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall, using my elbows and my chin 
my back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there, like Elijah, the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes, right and left, right. Every single chance I got, a, I got. I wanted to walk, I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there, to burn the flag, what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back, I was determined, because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, Quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night. I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometimes. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching, I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again, running five or 10 miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor, but being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam. It's 1968, and the war is ramping up. The latter part of April... I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and the legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter, he was riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow man and country. I'll never forget that man. 
We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his buddy, so Benavidez naturally got ready to just go back out and do it again. I was in another staging area waiting for an next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice, get us out of here, get us out of here, come in and get us out quick, ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in, land, and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner. Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, my God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, who are the people on the ground? He said, hey, he said, this that black NCO, that non-commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Wright. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter, we got on with the forward air controller to guide us in. He said, you can't go in there. You can't go in. It's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. You can't go in there. You can't go in there. It's too hot. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this story. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story here on Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day, one veteran story, but it could be any veteran serving our country. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day here. As always, we spend a full hour on that every day, and Memorial Day, and so many other days. And we celebrate military history on this show regularly. And it's sad that so few people have connection to our military and our armed forces and the lives of the people in them. But that's why we do this storytelling. You just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio, so he decided to just jump on a chopper against everyone's advice. As he says, he did not know that that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly wounded and secure classified documents. Here again, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of how in the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through 
when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand -hand combat. I was hit in the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up. The helicopter had over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area. And it started unloading. It started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, I, I, he was on a helicopter. So they let, they let the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my eyes, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. Oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. So the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much at the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. So they... We landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there, and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa, 
in that airplane that I was flying in, Matavac, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the beach pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career, and then I was awarded with a medal. After all of this, Benavidez recovered, and he moved back to his home in Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor the protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Master Sergeant Benavidez, duty, honor, country. You never live unless you almost die. And we're going to just rip through the wars, the casualties, and those who were killed. The American Revolution, 25,000 died, 25,000 wounded. War of 1812, 15,000 died, 4,500 wounded. The Civil War... 750,000 dead. And then it just, well, World War I, 116,000 dead, 204,000 of our best and finest men wounded. World War II, 405,000 dead, 
667,000 wounded. The Korean War, 36,000 dead, 92,000 wounded. Vietnam, 58,000 dead, 153,000 wounded. And then Afghanistan, 2,350 dead, 18,000 wounded. And Iraq, 4,400 dead, 32,000 wounded. 1,354,000 of our finest, their lives cut short. And 1,500,000 wounded. Celebrating all of their lives and all of those who serve here on Veterans Day, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our celebration of Veterans Day. We just talked about how many Americans have given their lives or limbs in service of our nation over the centuries, but of course, there are plenty of veterans living among us now. There are about 19 million men and women currently living who have previously served on active duty in the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, or Coast Guard, and 1.3 million on active duty right at this moment. And as fewer and fewer of us know members of the military as close friends and family, we might start thinking of them as some kind of other, out there performing great deeds of heroism for us to cheer from the other side of the TV screen. But our veterans aren't others. Indeed, they're us. And we're reminded of that every time we read war letters. We've done a lot of those on our show, and this is one of our favorites. It comes from Fletcher Isaacs, grandson of World War II veteran Leonard Isaacs, who was killed in action on Iwo Jima in 1945. Here's Fletcher reading the letter Leonard sent to his two boys, including Fletcher's father, before he shipped out to serve in the Pacific, never to return. December 17, 1944. My dear little boys, I'm writing to you today just a week before Christmas Eve in the hope that you will get this little note at Christmas time. All of this coming week will be holidays, and I can just imagine the fun you'll be having, especially when you know that it's just a few days before Santa Claus will be coming. If it were possible, I would like to come down the chimney myself and crawl right into your stocking. Wouldn't that be a surprise? I would enjoy it even more than you, but since your dad is far away and Santa Claus has the only reindeers that will fly through the air, I'm afraid we will have to let Santa Claus use them. After all, he has so many places to go in such a short time. I won't be able to give you a Christmas present personally this year, but I do want you to know that I think of you all the time and feel very proud of the way you've been helping your mother while I'm gone. I know that it is only natural for young, healthy, and strong boys like you are to want to play and have fun all the time, but I do want you to think about helping Mummy because it's hard for her to do everything while I'm gone. I know that you would like to give me a Christmas present too, so I'll tell you what you can do, and this will be your Christmas present to me. Every day, ask Mummy if there's any errands that you can do for her, and when there are errands, to run. Say, sure, Mummy, and give her a big smile. Then during the day, go and pick up your room and look around. If there are toys scattered all around, or if you've left some of your clothes on the floor, pick them up. Also, 
When Mummy is busy trying to clean up the house, don't leave her by herself. But ask Mummy if you can help take care of Baby's sister. If you do those things for me, well, that will be the finest Christmas present that you could give me. Oh yes, and Cece, are you eating your meals like a real man now? Well, my boys, I guess you often wonder why people fight and have wars, and why lots of daddies have to be away at Christmas time fighting, when it would be so much nicer just to be at home. That's a hard question to answer, but you see, some countries like Japan and Germany have people living in them, just like some people you and I know. Those people want to tell everybody what they can do and what they can't do. No one likes to be told how to live their life. I know that you wouldn't like it if one of the boys in the neighborhood tried to tell you what church you should go to, what school you should go to, and particularly if that boy was always be trying to beat up some smaller or weaker boy. You wouldn't like that, would you? And unfortunately, the only way to make a person like that stop these sorts of things, or a country like Japan or Germany, is to fight them and to beat them and teach them that being a bully, because after all, that's what they are, is not the way to live, and that we won't put up with it. What does all this mean to you? Just simply this, my boys. Dad doesn't want you to ever be a bully. I want you to always fight against anyone who tries to be one. I want you to always help the smaller fellow, or the little boy who may not be as strong as you. I want you to always share what you have with the other fellow, and above all, my boys, have courage. Have courage to do the things that you think are right. Never be afraid to fight for what you think is right. To do those things, you need a strong body and a brave heart. Never run away from someone you may be afraid of. If you do, you will always feel ashamed of yourself. And before long, you will find it so easy to run away from the things that you should stand up and fight against. If you and lots of other boys try to do the things that Dad has been talking to you about in this letter, it may be that people will not have to fight wars in the years to come, and then all the daddies in the world will be home for Christmas. And that is where they belong. Perhaps some of the things that I've been talking about you don't quite understand. If you don't, Mummy will explain them to you, as she knows. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless you. Daddy. And a dad just trying to cheer up the kids. Here's another letter, this one from the ancestor of a friend of this show, the late Maida Pearson Smith of Tennessee. This letter is from Amelia Irvin Smith to Daniel Smith, dated Monday, May 6th, 1861. Here's Faith reading this great letter. My dear husband, I have just heard from you through Tom Matthews, who has kindly offered to take this letter to you. He tells me that you have been or will be received into the company. I heard after you left that the company was full, and all those who went up to Montgomery late were turned off, and I was in hopes there would be enough without you, and you would soon be at home again with us. But I know it is wrong to be selfish, and I will try to submit to it cheerfully, and do my duty towards the precious charge you have left behind. I've thought of you every moment since you left, except when asleep, and my imagination has presented a thousand pictures of your situation, but I cannot tell whether any of them are true or not, and I sincerely hope that you will be more comfortable than I can imagine. 
The children are continually talking about Pa and asking when he will come home. Little Percy has been calling you several times, and Sally says that I must go after you and bring you back. She can't do without you. I always tell them that you will come as soon as you can, and I feel that you will. But do not think for one moment that I wish you to sacrifice your honor in the least, even for the happiness of being always with you. For I love it as much as you could, and I would not for my life be the means of casting the slightest blemish on your dear name. So when your thoughts turn homeward, think of me as being more reconciled and cheerful than when you left. Do take care of yourself for my sake. You can't imagine what a desolate, hopeless existence life would be to me without you. When you write, tell me all about your fare and how and where you sleep. I hope you are not exposed to the night air much, but I know that there is a being who can make all things powerless to harm you, and it is in him I place my trust. May he watch over you and bless you in every undertaking and bring you back to us again safely. The children all send much love and many little messages, which I have not room to write. The long, long days that have passed away before I see you again will have an end sometime. And depend on it, my dear husband, I will try and bear the bitter separation as cheerfully as possible. Do write as often and as much as you can, for every word that comes from you is precious to me. Your affectionate, Amelia. And that was a terrific read, Faith. And there are so many more letters, and we play them every Memorial Day, too, because they're so terrific. And Andrew Carroll is one of the great collectors of war letters, and his book on the subject is, well, it's a must-read. You should have it in your home, and the family should rip through those letters together on these days. In addition to having the hot dogs and the hamburgers and all the other things, uh, spend some time thinking about our, our veterans and the folks who serve this country. And we want to end with a classic. Anyone who's ever seen Saving Private Ryan knows. And, well, it's a letter. And this is the reading of that very famous letter by one of the great Americans of all time. <clears throat> I have a letter here. Written a long time ago to a Mrs. Bixby in Boston. So bear with me. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. Pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost. The solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom 
Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. And on this Veterans Day, we celebrate all who served, all who did serve, all who are serving, and put their life in harm's way for all of us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Veterans Day, their stories, and celebrated as always here on this show. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our special Veterans Day celebration. For the entire show, we're telling stories about our nation's vets. And of course, we're doing this in honor of Veterans Day, which had originally been called Armistice Day, and it was celebrated because of the ending and marking the ending of a major hostilities of World War I, which, of course, ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month back in 1918. Since June 1st, 1954, it's been known as Veterans Day. And again, we're telling these stories to honor all the people who've ever served in this great country, all the veterans who've served. Joy Neal Kidney is a listener in Iowa and listens on our station WHO in Des Moines, And she writes and records stories for us. Recently, she decided to record this story about her dad, the farmer, but also her dad, the veteran pilot. Let's listen to one of our listeners, Joy Neal Kidney, with her veteran story. An engine smoked and sputtered. One propeller began to stir on the aging bomber. Then another. The third engine started to shudder and choke. Satisfying sounds of old piston engines. Finally, the last one coughed to life. A few minutes earlier, I had been sitting in the pilot's seat of that World War II flying fortress, an old B-17 like the one in the movie Memphis Bell. In the seat where my dad sat seven decades ago. My dad, the farmer. As I sat in the cockpit looking out the pilot's window at the gold-tipped propellers, I tried to imagine that Iowa farmer teaching cadets to fly and later being in charge of that big four-engine bomber. In my mind's snapshot of Dad, he was wearing Big Smith overalls, where in the bib, he carried a pocket watch and a decal bullet pencil with a little metal cap to protect the lead point. Shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, a Pioneer brand seed corn cap, tired leather work boots, and Rockford socks. Vignettes of him guzzling Coca-Cola from a small, curvy glass bottle, leaving for the field on his red Massey Harris tractor, overseeing his crops from his perch on the gate, throwing back his head when he laughed. 
penciling neat diagrams and math formulas on scraps of paper. Catching a nap at the table after the noon dinner, his head resting on folded arms. That's the dad I knew. My husband, an air traffic controller at the Des Moines airport, had called to let me know that a B-17 was there, just for a short stopover. So I rushed out with my camera and asked if I could see inside, telling them that my dad had flown one in 1945. One man led me up a short ladder into the fuselage, then over a catwalk above the bomb bay to the cockpit. He told me to take all the time I wanted there. As I sat in the pilot's seat, a strong breeze buffeted the bomber. It swayed slightly. It sighed and creaked, just like Dad's barn on a windy day. I had forgotten about those friendly sounds. My thoughts turned to Dad's thorough instructions to my sister and me for our summer chores. How many half buckets of corn and oats to feed the hogs? How full to pump water into the cattle tank? And Dad patiently teaching me to shift gears on the Chevy's steering column in the barnyard the summer I learned to drive. It began to dawn on me that he would have used that same thoroughness and patience with young cadets. And I could appreciate that, yes, he would have been put in charge of a multi-engine plane and crew of 10. He eventually became commander of the even larger B-29 Superfortress, with a date set to leave for Saipan and combat over Japan when the war came to an end. While in that rare bomber, I was blessed with a glint of my dad in his other life. As a young lieutenant, in charge of aircraft instead of tractors, airmen instead of livestock. To exit the old warbird, I was told I could climb back through the plane and down the ladder, or I could drop out the way the crew did, through a small door right below the cockpit by grasping the edge and swinging out. There's no photographic evidence, but I did it, just like Dad had long ago. I returned to the other side of the chain-link fence to watch the fortress take off. The four engines were coaxed awake, one at a time. Did Dad also love that deep-throated growl? In a few minutes, the awkward to taxi aircraft headed toward the runway, nose up, tail down. It lumbered behind a hangar. A roar signaled takeoff, and the plexiglass nose emerged from behind the building, pointing the bomber down the runway. By the time that sleek, rugged old warbird leveled off and disappeared in the distance, I could readily reconcile my dad the farmer with dad the young World War II pilot. And what a great story. Again, that was Joy Neal Kidney, and she's from Des Moines, Iowa. 
And this story comes to us from Des Moines, and thanks to our great station in Des Moines, WHO. And my goodness, take a look one day at one of those B-17 flying fortresses. She said it was a sleek, rugged old warbird, and that it was. Indeed, it was the third most produced bomber of all time, and it's unimaginable that we could have thought of even winning the war without our great industrial capacity. Joy Neal Kidney's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and we're about to tell you one of the quintessential American stories about one of the most esteemed of our American vets. Yet chances are, many of you have never heard this man's name before. We're about to tell you the story of Audie Murphy, because today is Veterans Day. And by the way, we always dedicate Veterans Day to storytelling only about veterans. And that's what we do every Memorial Day. And my goodness, we spend so much time on D-Day, the sinking of the Indianapolis, and, well, countless hours a year are spent on our nation's vets, on the people who defended our freedoms, men and women alike. And by the way, send your stories, family stories, local legend stories, local town stories about our heroes, our nation's heroes. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now let's go to the story of Audie Murphy. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound, baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today, which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought, and at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star at a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him 
is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity. And they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A, a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time, embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here, in this one person, you have extreme heroism and extreme celebrity trying to mix. And his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audie was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy, more interested in, in gambling and having a good time. And the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun, and it had eight bullets in it. And Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22. I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on the run. Well, that's how we that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels, rabbits. 
And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family and he never came back. So now Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of a a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old. Plus, he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more from these great historians, more on this remarkable life, the life of Audie Murphy, here on Our American Stories. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a couple of hundred hours now on this day's in histories, on just pure stories, and particularly soldiers' stories. Arctic Winter's story from Band of Brothers, his life. You'll hear from him from the grave. When we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy. This is Our American Stories.
farmer lad His country found itself at war And he tried to lend a hand He volunteered to fight and die for freedom with a smile He was too young to carry a gun And he had to wait a while He reached 18 and tried again This time they let him in The soldiers called him Babyface and he took it with a grin But he told the men of the fighting third, don't judge me by my size I may be small but I bet you all I spit in the German's eyes And we return to Our American Stories and we're listening to Wiley J. Smith's Ballad of Audie Murphy And if you've never seen the movie To Hell and Back, it comes on TV all the time This time, don't skip it, it's terrific And it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake, too, so everybody today knows who Audie Murphy is. We're telling the story of Audie Murphy because today is Veterans Day. Let's return to Greg Hengler and Audie's story. The Army Infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he he was impressively tough from the very beginning, and he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And uh, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the 3rd Division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter and Audie Murphy I don't know if I want to say envies him for this but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he you know he doesn't have much in the way of family and he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says you know you're gonna get back to see her you're gonna get back to her you're gonna be a great father and then You know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44, and they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they they get one German foxhole to surrender to them, and they they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. 
and he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes. And then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes, and he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is, and and he he cries over him. It's just a a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America. The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across the snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling, you know, where to drop the artillery rounds. And he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight to the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And then he realizes that over to his right, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank. And he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke. And it masks his position. It gives him cover. It's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. And he thought that the Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him, number one. And they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. Later he said, I remember being up on there and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. And there's a story, and I think it's true, that, you know, he's up on this tank with his right hand on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for artillery support. And across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? How close are they? How the fun I'll let you talk to them! 
and his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. It gets to the point where the shells coming in are kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back. And, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking. And he walks over to a tree and he leans against the tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched it, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. Though he was badly wounded, Audie never left his gun. He killed 240 men and made the Germans run. And when the fight was over, the men all gathered round to shake the hand of the Texas man that backed the Germans down. sent for him when he heard what he had done gave him the highest honor our country has to give shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we But I changed that laughter to tears And now I live in a world without sunshine Oh, how I wish you were here And we continue with Our American Stories. You're listening to Dean Martin singing an original composition written by none other than Audie Murphy. We're celebrating this Veterans Day with this story about America's most decorated soldier. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the final part of the Audie Murphy story. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think. A little, a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy. And Audie says to him, you know, don't be afraid to be scared. There's going to be times when you're scared to death. And then Audie tells this kid, I'm always scared when I'm at the front. And it's, it's, the irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But 
Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style for people who can't take it and who break under combat, to somebody who understands intimately how how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's, he's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. There's nothing today, and I think about this sometimes, I, I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. But it's this cover, and it shows him looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school. And of course he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed, you know, 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly. This guy was 50% disabled, according to the U.S. Army. And, and this guy's carrying around, already carrying around some, some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night. But there he is on the cover of Life magazine, looking like a Norman Rockwell figure come to life. One of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in a gym that a friend of his owned and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back. And that was all about his experiences in the war. To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who, who had fought, who had died, and kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. 
It was actually Universal Studios' highest-earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. Although Audie's high point was very public, Audie's low point was more private. But while this, all this was going on off-screen, Audie, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle, but during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. He never really did get over it, but he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director Bud Bedeker on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day. And he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45. The picture's in good shape. Don't worry about a thing. I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds. And I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a bitch. And he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly, it's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief, doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Beck. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning, and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, If I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for 
as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero. Tom Brokaw. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man. Humble beginnings. Humble in birth and humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington National Cemetery, you must go. You must take the family. As solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks and no one laughs and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And it was a remarkable thing to not have that special lettering there. Many Medal of Honor winners choose it. And Murphy just didn't want to be different than the rest of the guys. Well, he's received every award, every citation, including the Medal of Honor, all before, again, he turned 20 years old. The baby. He looked 14, they said over and over again. Remember also that he wrote 17 songs. Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagoner, Jimmy Dean, Charlie Pride. And we're going to bump out with this Jerry Wallace cover of Audie Murphy's When the Wind Blows in Chicago. This is Lee Habib, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Story. Oh, why won't it let me forget? 